Volume One, Chapter Nine of Gwen Wynne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Gwen Wynne, A Romance of the Why by Maine Reed. Volume One, Chapter Nine. Jealous Already. Captain Rycroft has lost more than Rodden Line. His heart is as good as gone too, given to Gwendolyn Wynne. He now knows the name of the yellow-haired Naiad, for this, with other particulars, she imparted to him on return upstream. Neither has her confidence thus extended, nor the conversation leading to it, belied the favourable impression made upon him by her appearance. Instead, so strengthened it, that for the first time in his life he contemplates becoming a Benedict. He feels that his fate is sealed, or no longer in his hands, but hers. As Wingate pulls him on homeward, he draws out his cigar-case, sets fire to a fresh weed, and, while the blue smoke wreathes up round the rim of his topi, reflects on the incidents of the day, reviewing them in the order of their occurrence. Circumstances apparently accidental have been strangely in his favour. Helped as by heaven's own hand, working with the rudest instruments. Through the veriest scum of humanity he has made acquaintance with one of its fairest forms. More than mere acquaintance, he hopes, for surely those warm words and glances far from cold could not be the sole offspring of gratitude. If so, a little service on the why goes a long way. Thus reflects he, in modest appreciation of himself, deeming that he has done but little, how different the value put upon it by Gwen Wynne. Still he knows not this, or at least cannot be sure of it. If he were, his thoughts would be all rose-coloured, which they are not. Some are dark as the shadows of the April showers now and then drifting across the sun's disk. One that has just settled on his brow is no reflection from the firmament above, no vague imagining, but a thing of shape and form, the form of a man, seen at the top of the boat-stair, as the ladies were ascending, and not so far off as to have hindered him from observing the man's face, and noting that he was young and rather handsome. Already the eyes of love have caught the keenness of jealousy. A gentleman evidently on terms of intimacy with Miss Wynne. Strange, though, that the look with which he regarded her on saluting seemed to speak of something amiss. What could it mean? Captain Rycroft has asked this question as his boat was rounding the end of the Iot, with another in the self-same formulary of interrogation, of which but the moment before he was himself the subject. Who the deuce can he be? Out upon the river, and drawing hard at his regalia, he goes on. Wonderfully familiar, the fellow seemed. Can't be a brother? I understood her to say she had none. Does he live at Langoran? No. She said there was no one there in the shape of masculine relative, only an old aunt and that little dark damsel, who is cousin or something of the kind. But who the deuce is the gentleman? Might he be a cousin? So propounding questions without being able to answer them, he at length addresses himself to the waterman, saying, "'Jack, did you observe a gentleman at the head of the stair?' "'Only the head and shoulders are one, Captain. "'Head and shoulders, that's enough. "'Do you chance to know him?' "'I ain't thorough sure, but I think he be a Mr. Shenstone.' "'Who is Mr. Shenstone?' "'The son of Sir George.' 
"'Sir George? What do you know of him? Not much to speak of, only that he be a big gentleman, whose land lies along the river, two or three miles below.' The information is but slight, and slighter the gratification it gives. Captain Rycroft has heard of the rich baronet whose estate adjoins that of Langoran, and whose title, with the property attached, will descend to an only son. It is the torso of this son he has seen above the red sandstone rock, in truth a formidable rival. So he reflects, smoking away like mad. After a time he again observes, "'You've said you don't know the ladies we've helped out of their little trouble?' "'Personally I don't, Captain. But now as I see where they live I know who they be. I've heard talk about the biggest of them a good deal.' "'The biggest of them? As if she were a salmon.' In the boatman's eyes, bulk is evidently her chief recommendation. Rycroft smiles, further interrogating. What have you heard of her? That she be a tidy young lady, wonderful fond of field sports such as hunting in that lake. For all, I may say that up to this day I never set eyes on her afore. The Hussar officer has been long enough in Herefordshire to have learnt the local signification of tidy, synonymous with well-behaved. That Miss Wynne is fond of field sports, flood pastimes included, he has gathered from herself while rowing her up the river. One thing strikes him as strange, that the waterman should not be acquainted with every one dwelling on the river's bank, at least for a dozen miles up and down. He seeks an explanation. How is it, Jack, that you, living but a short league above, don't know all about these people? He is unaware that Wingate, though born on the wise banks, as he has told him, is comparatively a stranger to its middle waters, his birthplace being far up in the shire of Brecon. Still, that is not the solution of the enigma, which the young waterman gives in his own way. "'Lord love ye, sir! That shows how little you understand this river. Why, Captain, it crooks and crooks and goes wobbling about in such a way that folks as lives less than a mile apart knows no more o' one the other than if they were ten. It comes of the bridges being so few and far between. There's the ferry-boats, true, but people don't take to em more than they can help, especially women, seeing there be some danger at all times, and a good deal to it when the river's a flood. That's frequent, summer as well as winter. The explanation is reasonable, and, satisfied with it, Rycroft remains for a time wrapped in a dreamy reverie, from which he is aroused as his eyes rest upon a house, a quaint, antiquated structure, half-timber, half-stone, standing not on the river's edge, but at some distance from it up a dingle. The sight is not new to him. He has before noticed the house, struck with its appearance so different from the ordinary dwellings. "'Whose is that, Jack?' he asks. "'Belongs to a man named Murdoch. Odd-looking domicile. Taint a bit more that way than he be, if half what they say about him is true.' "'Ah, Mr. Murdoch's a character, then. Aye, and a query one. In what respect?' What way? More than one, a goodish many. Specify, Jack? Well, for one thing, he ain't sober to say half of his time. Addicted to dipsomania. Addicted to getting dead drunk. I've seen him so scores occasions. That's not wise of Mr. Murdoch. No, Captain, tain't neither wise nor well. All the worse, considering the place where mostly he go to do his drinking. Where may that be? The Welsh Harp, up at Rogue's Ferry. Rogue's Ferry? "'Strange appellation. What sort of place is it? Not very nice, I should say, if the name be at all appropriate.' "'It's perfectly appropriate, though I believe it want that way bestowed. 
it got so called after a man the name of Rugg, who once keep the Welsh harp and the ferry too. It's about two mile above, a little ways back. Besides the tavern there be a cluster of houses, a bit scattered about, we a chapel and a grocery shop, one as deals trackways, and ain't particular as to what they take in change, stolen goods welcome as any. Ay, welcomer if they be a worth. They got plenty on too. The place be a regular nest of poachers, and worse than that, a good many as have served their spell in the penitentiary. Why, Wingate, you astonish me. I was under the impression your wise side was a sort of Arcadia, when one only met with innocence and primitive simplicity. You won't meet much of either at Rogue's Ferry. If there be an uninnocent set on earth, it's they as live there. Them forest chaps we come across ain't no ways their match in wickedness. Just possible drink made them behave as they did, some of them. But drink or no drink, it be all the same with the ferry people. Maybe worse when they're sober. Anyways, they're a rough lot. With a place of worship in their midst, that ought to do something towards refining them. Ought, and would, I dare say, if twere the right sort, which it ain't. Instead, oh, a kind as only the more corrupts them, being Roman. Oh, a Roman Catholic chapel. But how does it corrupt them? By making them believe they can get cleared of their sins, howsoever black they be. Men as think that way ain't likely to stick at any sort of crime, specialty if it brings them the money to buy what they calls absolution. Well, Jack, it's very evident you're no friend or follower of the Pope. Neither a Pope nor priest. Ah, Captain, if you'd seen him at the Rogue's Ferry Chapel, you wouldn't wonder at my having a dislike for the whole kit of them. What is there specially repulsive about him? Don't know as there be anything very special in particular. Them priests all look about the same, such as them as I've ever set eyes on. And that's like stoats and weasels, shooting out of one hole into another. As for him we're speaking about, he's here, there, and everywhere, sneaking along the roads and paths, hiding behind bushes like a cat after birds, and popping out when nobody expects him. If ever there were a spy meaner than another, it's the priest of Rogue's Ferry. No, he adds, correcting himself, there be one other in these parts worse than he, if that's possible, a different sort of man, true, and yet they be a good deal together. Who is this other? Dick Dempsey, better known by the name of Coracle Dick. Ah, Coracle Dick, he appears to occupy a conspicuous place in your thoughts, Jack, and rather a low one in your estimation. Why, may I ask, what sort of fellow is he? The biggest blackguard as lives on the way, from where it springs out of Plinlimon to its emptying into the Bristol Channel. Talk of poachers and night-netters. He goes out by night to catch something besides salmon. Taint all fish as comes into his net, I know. The young waterman speaks in such hostile tone, both about priest and poacher, that Rycroft suspects a motive beyond the ordinary prejudice against men who wear the sacerdotal garb or go trespassing after game. Not caring to inquire into it now, he returns to the original topic, saying, "'We've strayed from our subject, Jack, which was the hard-drinking owner of yonder house.' "'Not so far, Captain, seeing as he be the most intimate friend the priest have in these parts, though if what's said be true, not nigh so much as his missus. Murdoch is married, then?' "'I won't say that, leastwise I shouldn't like to swear it. All I know is a woman lives with him, supposed to be his wife. Odd thing, she.' "'Why odd?' "'cause she be ain't like any other a womankind bout here. "'Explain yourself, Jack. "'In what does Mrs. Murdoch differ from the rest of your Herefordshire fare?' "'One way, Captain, in her not being fair at all. "'Stead she be dark-complected, "'most as much a one of them women I've seed about Cheltenham, 
nursing the children of old officers as brought em from India. Ayers, they call em. She ain't one of them, but French, I've heard say, which in part, I suppose, explains the thickness between her and the priest, he being the same. Oh, his reverence is a Frenchman, is he? All of that, Captain. If he were English, he wouldn't, couldn't, be the contemptible sneaking hound he is. As for Mrs. Murdoch, I can't say I've seen her more than twice in my life. She keeps close to the house, goes nowhere, and it's said nobody visits her nor him, leastwise none of the old gentry, for all Mr. Murdoch belongs to the best of them. He's a gentleman, is he? Ought to be if he took after his father. Why so? Because he were a squire, regular of the old sort. He's not been so long dead. I can remember him myself, though I hadn't been here such a many years. The old lady, too, this Murdoch's mother. Ah, now I think on it, she were the other squire's sister, father to the tallest of them two young ladies, the one with the reddish hair. What, Miss Wynne? Yes, Captain, her they calls Gwen. Rycroft questions no farther. He has learnt enough to give him food for reflection, not only during the rest of that day, but for a week, a month. It may be throughout the remainder of his life. End of Volume 1, Chapter 9